Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I'm joined by my colleague here at Cedarville, Billy Marsh. Billy is an excellent Luther scholar, and so we talk about Luther and the Reformation right here around Reformation Day. We talk about some truths and myths about Luther, about the late medieval church, and about the Reformation, and we talk about what we can learn from Luther and the Reformers today. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Billy. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. We're also brought to you by Cedarville University's Graduate School. Here at Cedarville, where I make my life and my ministry and where the center of all the things I do are, is a great place to study. We've got some fantastic residential programs in our graduate school, including athletic training, PA studies, pharmacy, and more. We also have some online graduate programs, including business, innovation, leadership, ministry, nursing, worship, and residential healthcare. What I'm most excited about, of course, is our MDiv program, where I spend much of my time teaching. We've got several MDiv options, including an accelerated BA in Biblical Studies and MDiv option that you can complete in five years with faculty members that you've heard here on this podcast, like myself, of course, Chet Spellman, Billy Marsh in today's episode, Matthew Bennett, J.R. Gilhooley, and many others. We also recently added Jonathan Arnold and Ronnie Kurtz to our faculty. So we have a fantastic group of scholars and theologians here. So we hope you'll send some people to come study with us here at Cedarville University. And now my conversation with Billy Marsh. But first, no big deal. Marsha's here, colleague, friend, co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else we should describe it, but I've only been spending the last three years trying to get you to come on Church Grammar, so I'm glad I finally was able to corner you into it. That's right, man. The persistent widow. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. She's a good guy in Scripture, right? That's right. She, she That's right. A, she's a hero. Yes, absolutely. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Billy is one of the top Luther scholars in all of mm-hmm. the universe. And I just happen to have an office right across the hall from him. So what I want to do today, since we're around the Reformation and Halloween and all that kind of stuff, is just talk a little Reformation with you. So Billy did his work, doctoral work, and continuing sort of research on Luther, particularly Luther's hermeneutics and how he read the Bible. So he has Martin Luther on reading the Bible as Christian scripture, which was your dissertation, right, published with Pickwick. And then uh, recently, you and another colleague of ours, Jason Lee, uh, have the Matthew volume in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture from IBP. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to talk to anybody about Luther, you're going to be the top guy. Man, number that's one. gracious. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, let's start here. I think when we think about the Catholic Church, when we think about the Reformation, people tend to think about the Catholic Church now as the Catholic Church then, or they'll think about, you know, the church when Augustine was around as the Catholic Church then. You've got all these different ways people think about history. Mm-hmm. So maybe give a good sort of truth versus myth of what's going on in the late medieval Catholic Church. What is Luther responding to? Is that a regionally located thing? Is that a nationally located thing? Is that a hundred-year problem? Just kind of some of those big issues of what is he responding to and what's going on at that time? Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a good question because I think people tend to think of the Roman Catholic Church that the Reformation's responding to is just a, a, a huge kind of monolithic entity. Not always a respecter of its uh, development, uh, what's happening during the Middle Ages, um, even maybe what's different about it now in contemporary life and, and practices and confessions and, and, and especially post-Vatican II. But uh, I, I have grown to really narrow the way that I think about what the Reformation is responding to, and, and Luther in particular, to the late medieval system of theology and piety and ecclesiastical life and structure. Um, and, uh, and so you could see variations of that from early Middle Ages to the high middle ages but but there's something definitely happening 13th century onward um that is a uh, probably the the up close and personal what the reformation is responding to or at least what's the 
what it's the what's the backdrop of it there's all kinds of theories and and arguments as to you know uh, what it is that luther what spurs him on uh, maybe it's his you know his angst his it's uneasy conscience um is it just that he's you know really mad about indulgences and and taking advantage of uh, the people and so in that sense it's also a local local thing i mean luther has in mind his um his own city his own um congregants you know so to speak um and uh and so it, it definitely has a huge wide you know european scope but also something that's just very much um down the street uh, with respect to kind of what he sees happening uh, as he's serving in Wittenberg and and uh, thinking about the care of souls, so um, I, I think probably you know as you're as you're looking into even before the ninety five theses, Luther what you know something that doesn't always get attention is he he's already published a disputation against scholastic theology at that point. And so there's some wrestling with his own medieval kind of theological inheritance that he has, which is not only its 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 own systematic theology, but but also uh, it's it's the piety. Uh, it's the it's the how does how does a person stand before God? And so that that there's something there that he is definitely res- wrestling with and is not at home with and at peace with uh, as much as he probably he feels like he should be. Uh, Stalpitz, his mentor, uh, has a lot to do with that too. And, and a lot of recent studies have, have drawn that out, you know, in, in more clarity. I mean, Steinmetz, uh, great um, Reformation historian, uh, uh, really along the lines of Obermann, Heiko Obermann, I mean, Steinmetz drew this out in his own own work with uh, Luther and Stalpitz, but but others since have continued to chase that out. And most recently, uh, a translated biography uh, around, I guess, the you know 2017 celebrations by Volker Lapine, um, Luther, a late medieval life. You know, he he really spends a lot of time just helping you see how important Stalpit was for. Um, kind of stirring up in Luther some questions about what he had received in his training and, and what was probably the status quo at that point. And so I think when people are, are worried about at least Protestant evangelicals not being Roman Catholic in the spirit of the Reformation, the more we can understand those 200 years in proximity to 1517, the better grip we have on the actual nuances, the actual changes, the actual reforms that people are calling for, the views of the Bible, views of sanctification, justification, what's what's what is what does it mean for a person to be right with God? What is good works? All those things are that's really um, the sounding board for uh, for the Reformation, I think. So, if we don't if we don't have a grasp of that, then we just kind of uh, have this ambiguous bad bad guy out there we're always responding to that may not actually be the uh the antagonist in the story you know with the reformation so yeah and, and is it the case i mean people say this it feels by my lights the case but that's why you're the expert and you're here um <laughs> luther you know most people say luther wasn't trying to leave the catholic church he was trying to reform the catholic church that he saw issues that were going on there so how much of it is him? I mean, most people say he didn't want there to be a group called the Lutherans after mm-hmm. him or something like that. But, but what you know, what are the two or three things that, that, in your opinion, of all the options you could come up with? What are the two or three things where you're like, this is where Luther had the the issue, mm-hmm. and what was he trying to do, maybe locally and ecclesiastically, mm-hmm. as he was working through that? Yeah, I, I still th- I still think today the the best. The best place to, to see that is the 1520 writings. Um, a lot of people know them as the three treatises, which are the to the Christian nobility, um, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and then the freedom of a Christian. Now, before all three of those, Luther wrote uh, a treatise called A Treatise on Good Works. And, and, and in recent years, 
more light has been shed on how important that particular riding was for, for also being a pace setter for the rest of the ridings of 1520. Some will refer to those writings as, as Luther's kind of mature reformational theology um, in the sense that, you know, at this point, he knows he's in trouble <laughs> with, uh, with the powers that be. And so uh, he's, he's getting the chance to kind of now just really exercise, uh, we might say, this new evangelical theology um, in contradistinction to the, the late medieval system and, and piety that he, he knows. Um, and so I think they represent specifically the three treatises, you know, a place that you could locate that from uh, <clears throat> at least with the Babylonian captivity, the idea of the churches, um, churches, maybe again, to use Jesus' language, the, the captivity of the, the Lord's Supper and um, you know, the, uh, the sole interpretation of scripture, you know, the, the lo- location of authority over a person's life, um, just bound up in these ecclesi- ecclesiastical structures and laws that Luther's beginning to see just do not have biblical basis and, and, uh, and actually do more harm to withdraw salvation from a person than give it. Um, and so you can find traces into the Christian ability and the Babylonian captivity of this idea of freedom. You know, there's something about the church at that point that has held in captive these things that belong to all believers, uh, whether it is the gift of salvation or is it the uh, spiritual practices of the church, or maybe we would say the scriptures the ability to read them, to interpret them, uh, the the opportunity to challenge an interpretation, um, an opportunity to maybe go against the grain of a given tradition, and uh, and so the, he's calling you know to the German ability to kind of take some matters into to their own hands because the the church is not doing it, and so he resorts to the. The, the Christian nobility to to kind of take up that vocation and 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 help maybe call a council do something let's let's do something to kind of break free of these structures that are are doing more spiritual harm than good and uh, and then when you come to the freedom of a Christian at the end of fifteen twenty uh, Luther's already been excommunicated at that point and uh, Robert Cole did a full-on kind of commentary on the freedom of Christian a few years ago through uh, Fortress Press's uh, Mapping the Tradition series. Really nice little monograph. And, um, you know, he one of the arguments he makes is that the freedom of Christian in contrast to uh, to the Christian ability in the Babylonian captivity is that those those two are polemical. Uh, uh, he's deconstructing the medieval late medieval piety and ecclesiastical system there. The freedom of a Christian is not a deconstructionist work in that way. It's a positive treatment of the sum of the Christian life. Uh, And uh, he's just declaring now the gospel, uh, not as something that's withheld from you for whatever reason, but now as something that's given. And so Luther has a, in addition to just what it means to be free, um, uh, that freedom is made possible by the, the gift giving of God, you know, he has this lots of great sections in there on the nature of salvation as a gift. Uh, you don't withhold; you you give. The, the gospel is God's giving of those uh, His Word, uh, or in and through His Word, uh, His Son, uh, the forgiveness of sins, justification, um, and then once you receive those gift, or ultimately that gift, which is Christ Himself, then you're free. To, to do the works of love. You're, you're free to now give yourself uh, to God. Um, he uses the uh, Song of Songs there. Um, I'm mine and, my, and uh, my beloved is mine and I'm my beloved's. And, um, and then you live in and through your neighbor uh, through the deeds of love freely because you know that whatever you do there is, is not bound up with meriting favor with God in any way. It can actually be a free work. So... So I think that, you know, those things are still kind of the hard. Like if I said, hey, what was it 
ultimately, what did it turn out to be? I think those treatises in 1520 are, are getting after that in terms of what is the churchly role in God's economy for the Christian? And, uh, and then what's just the nature of the gospel uh, according to the scriptures? You know, if we even were, if we rewound a little bit and went to 1518 to the Heidelberg Disputation, which is just a really cool moment because in 1517 with the 95 Theses, you know, Luther, you read those and some of those, some of those theses, you're like, oh, I can hear, I can hear, you know, what's to come. And then other things, you know, he still sounds like he's very much entrenched in uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Um, and some of the theological commitments that come with that. But, you know, he gets, again, he, he gets in trouble pretty quickly through the 95 Theses. And so in 1518, Stalpich has him as kind of like the keynote speaker at this disputation in Heidelberg. And he's, he, he's given him the softball opportunity to just say, here is what I really want to say. Like, here is the evangelical theology that I want to promote. And, you know, that's where, like, the theology of the cross comes out. That's where um, theology of glory is discussed. That's where uh, he clarifies, you know, what's the role of the law? What's the, how do we understand mortal and venial sin? And kind of makes the point they're all mortal sins. Um, and uh, it's just a, it's just a neat to see that in its context. It's kind of like, you know, hey, say what you would, what, say what you'd really want to say, because, you're already in trouble. And so just, just be honest now, you know, uh, take it to the next level. And the Heidelberg is that way. And, and, uh, there's a preface to the Heidelberg that he gives just a, you know, a short, short intro where he says, um, you know, this, these theses are going to explain the nature of the gospel according to, to Paul and Augustine, his best interpreter. Um, Whereas back in the disputation against scholastic theology in 1517, he says nobody who wants to be a theologian can ever read can can read Aristotle. <laughs> you know, so he's a, he's 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 afraid that uh, Aristotle has replaced Augustine, and mm-hmm. he, and that makes him upset because Augustine helps you read Paul, and and so the scripture, the true scriptural meaning of the gospel, has been lost. Yeah, that's all. That's all related to. I mean, that's all related to Stalpitz's sort of influence on him as well, right? I mean, so is Stalpitz. Uh, would you say he is? He was already the reformer that he was mm. sort of training Luther to be, and he was like, "Luther's got a you know better shot, better articulation." Uh, and just start egging him on, or were they going on the same path there? Or what do you think was going on with his theology yeah, and his relationship yeah. there? No, I, I no, I think um, I think through. Like I said, Steinmetz and, and others since him, uh, especially some of the recent work done in the last ten or fifteen years, uh, who people are giving more and more attention to that that particular relationship in their biographical study of Luther and so forth. Have just seen that Stalpitz is way way more um, a little bit of uh, forward thinking there. Um, than probably he maybe has been given credit for in the past. And, you know, it, it's it's probably true historically within the scholarship he, that has been noted, but but at least at a popular level, he just is kind of seen as a father figure for Luther. Um, you know, he, he's someone Luther could confess to, and he kind of takes Luther in his wing. But but the more you get to know Stalpitz's own kind of um, interests, some of the I – mean, you read some of some of the things he, he says, and I mean, it, it sounds like – Reformation, you know, I mean, he's so, yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely more to his particular role um, materially in Luther's life, um, not just paternally or, um, you know, uh, giving him opportunities to teach and things like he there's something he's passing on to Luther that Luther is listening to and uh, is definitely a part of what is um making Luther Luther and in, in what he's wrestling with theologically um, with his uh, his medieval inheritance. So let's talk uh, a little bit about Luther's hermeneutics. Um, that's where you've done a lot of your work. Maybe we could talk about that more generally and then talk about maybe some contributions in Matthew or some unique things in Matthew from your RCS um, mm-hmm. volume. So maybe just give a big picture of his hermeneutics. You know, you've got, again, this is one of those things where depending on who you ask, 
Uh, Luther completely abandons the tradition. Mm. Um, he hates all the patristics except for <laughs> Augustine or something like that, which makes me sad. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, he, you sort of reclaims the literal sense and nobody else cared about, it. you know, there's all those things that, that, that people think about the reformation being this radical change. So maybe just talk through Luther's hermeneutics where there's some continuity with those before him, mm. where he's clearly mm. making a distinction and, and building something new. Yeah. You know, having written on that, it would, you know, I should be able to answer that a lot, a lot more easily or easier, I think, <laughs> here. So it's uh, it's like a lot of things, too. Uh, you, know, you, you get a subject that just has such a mountain of research on it. You can still get to know it and, and work through it, but then trying to assimilate it, distill it, even figure out, like, who's right, who's wrong, and where do I want to land continues to be a, a challenge. And um, I think it, from, for my own sake, I, I see Luther not being as novel, you know, as others might would want him to be. Um, he definitely breaks free of, you know, uh, just a rote usage of the fourfold sense that, he would have kind of come out the gate using and teaching as a lecturer in Wittenberg at the university. Um, I think reading his early Psalms lectures, the dictata um, are evidence of that, you know, and there's, there's so much debate over a potential hermeneutical shift going on in those uh, first lectures. Even if you think someone's right about that, like James Preus, um, who, who makes such a, a particular claim. Um, regardless, when you read the, the first lectures on the Psalms, I mean, there's, he's clearly doing fourfold sense, you know, at, at large swaths of the material. And so, um, and when you read late, you know, later Luther, um, or at least years down the road, there is, a, I mean, there's a difference. It, it doesn't feel like he's just rehashing his old lectures or something, you know, um, and there's a lot of, a lot of work that's been done there, but, but just well, as a professor too, you know, we like to reuse our lectures. So it's just, yeah. it's just sad to hear that yeah. the poor Luther had to redo everything. Yeah. So. <laughs> he did, well, you know, he's kind of like me where I, I don't like to give out my lectures before I teach. Cause I'm kind of always updating them and, and, and editing them like, <laughs> like in real time, you know? Uh, and he's, he's definitely, he's not lazy there. He's going to come back and, and work on them and keep, keep trying to think about what he wants to do, how he wants to handle the text at this point, you know? Um, and so, so I would say like, even if you think that Luther reconfigures the fourfold sense approach, that doesn't mean that he's not using the tradition. Um, I mean, that's, there's plenty of evidence across his writings that, I mean, he stays in constant dialogue with the tradition. Um, and it's certainly not just Augustine either. Um, I mean, he, you'll find Jerome throughout there. You'll find, um, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty, pretty wide scope of patristic, uh, fingerprints throughout his, uh, his writings. Um, uh, and one reason for that is because he, he, he refers back to the glossa, you know, I mean, he, he's reading that he's using those sources. Um, he's using others that use those sources too, with, you know, like Nicholas of Lyra and, and, uh, especially him and, and then Faber. Um, and so what, what does change, I think somewhat is the way he approaches the text it, itself, um, as a theological source. So, and, and I've always found very helpful phrase and conceptuality from a Christopher Ocker's study called Biblical Poetics. Um, uh, there's a longer title, but I'll spare the, the listeners. But if you look up Christopher Ocker, uh, Biblical Poetics, he has an outstanding study on um, the kind of the Middle Ages moving into the Reformation and their hermeneutics there. And, and he, he makes the point that the Reformers actually aren't doing anything terribly novel um, from the late medieval kind of advances that were happening. Um, there are, there are some, th some, some fresh things going on, 
Um, so, and what they are is what he calls a, a kind of a, a new sense of a, a textual attitude. There's a they have a textual attitude. So rather than having to 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 add uh, layers of sense senses onto a text to get it to do something theologically, the, the text itself is capable of doing that theological work. Um, and one way to draw that out is through the kind of literary analysis, and and Ocker even makes the point, you know, the kind of new attention to rhetoric within um, uh, within the reformers and Luther uh, in particular, uh, that those those kind of biblical humanist resources are are helping people engage the text at a, at a vibrant level that is drawing out of the literal sense the actual spiritual theological meaning, which the tradition still helps you discern. Um, and, uh, and so there is undeniably, you know, something happening at that point with the Reformation that, that does call, cause a little turn in the road uh, through the history of biblical interpretation that takes us up into, you know, post-Reformation and, and, and then modernity. And so this is why people are, will debate as to whether or not Luther in particular, or or even just the, the magisterial reformers, um, or, you know, are they really medieval interpreters, or are they the first early modernist interpreters? You know, um, and uh, I, I I do think specifically with respect to Luther, he's he's primarily a medieval interpreter. He just he's one that is beginning to pay better attention to the text and and what it's capable of doing on its own terms. So there's a heavy grammatical. Um, since, you know, I mean, there's a following the way of the words there, but, um, but not at the expense of, of rich theological depth and meaning that they, they can have, you know, Childs talks, Brevard Childs used to, I, th- I think at various places would talk about like the text having a depth dimension or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, I, I think that's what you're, you're not finding the text as a, as a, platform to jump off to and then do other things in terms of an ascent into, you know, divine meaning. Um, it's actually the, the more you push into a text and what it's actually saying, it has a, has a depth to it of theological riches to kind of draw out of it. And so, you know, I think Luther's doing that there. So when you read him and, and depending on when you read him too, you know, it's, it's, there's a difference between dropping into a 1530 writing and a fifteen. 19 or 1520 or something, you know? Mm. Um, so, but, but most often when you drop into him, um, you know, you're, you're going to have, you're going to get a chance to hear about the text while also someone who's still wrestling with, uh, the theological realities that it's, it's giving way to. So, yeah, I think, you know, people tend to say something like, you know, the medieval period with the fourfold sense, we're sort of laying these senses over the text or here's the sort of categories Whereas Luther is saying something more like all of that is contained in the literal sense because it's contained in the text and this text that's a reference to Christ. Is that kind of a, is that, is that too trite to say, or is that generally right? Yeah. Um, uh, I think what you see happening is uh, a renewed understanding that the text itself is a place of divine revelation and address. Hmm. And so rather than trying to figure out how to turn a, a, a Psalm at it, at it, let's say you're working in a, maybe a simple, you know, simple understanding of the fourfold sense where the, the literal meaning is its historical sense. So rather than trying to figure out how to make David signify Christ in some sense um, that might be removed from the actual authorial communicative intent of the of the biblical author what's what what luther will begin to do is to see how christ is present in what david is saying because david is is in his own words giving the hope and the promise of the messiah and so it's a christological reading because the way that god addresses humans through David is the promise. And so we hear, we receive that word by faith and we have Christ given to us in in that. And that's how we live waiting um, to be with him. Um, And so that is a Christian reading of that text. 
And, and that is what David's trying to do literarily, we might say, you know, um, and uh, and so the, those worlds are fused together a little bit more. And that, that's those are all reductionist, right? You know, generalities there, because, yeah. I mean, Luther is uh, he'll do what he wants to at times, too. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so there's still plenty of flourish you know, uh, to, to, to observe, you know, in the writings there. Uh, and, uh, that's fun. You know, there's, there's fun, yeah. lots of fun moments to, to watch somebody kind of get a hold of a text and, and see how it gets a hold of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Some might call it allegory. Some might just call it rhetorical flourish, right? Yeah. And that's, that's another, I mean, again, everything's a discussion point, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah. especially later on, when we would think that Luther has become well established in his own kind of interpretive practices, we still will refer to alleg- use use allegory. Um, you know, and others will say, "Oh, see, he didn't completely abandon it," whereas others are seeing it more as a sermonic device. You know, it's yeah. it's really just his his way of using um, using it for illustrative purposes as he's preaching. Um, you know, if you're thinking about if you're preaching a text and you don't want to, you don't want to use a, you know, a, a cute illustration from the world, you know, then you go find a, a biblical, a different biblical text and, and use it, mm-hmm. even if it might be a little bit of a co-opting that text in some way, you know? And so, um, who among us, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, none of us have ever done that, right? So, no, not, I mean, not me. Maybe you, <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe me. Maybe me. So, all right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Matthew a little bit. I mean, you can kind of take this however you want, but since we're sort of staying in the Luther uh, wheelhouse here, are there some things you know as you're as you're working through this Reformation commentary, and particularly maybe Luther with Matthew? Are there some things that stand out to you as interesting or particularly useful? Uh, or maybe as a, as an example of the type of things he does with the gospels, just any of that kind of mm. insights into how he's reading something like a gospel. Mm. You know, I, I need to preface what I say with the fact that I I came to that commentary um, late. You know, Jason had done tremendous amount of work before I ever came on board, so I want to give credit where credits due there. Um, and uh, and so. When I when I got to become a part of it, it was just already encouraging to see the um, exciting excerpts and selections that he had, you know, with the help of others too along the way, um, just pulled out for, uh, of watching the reformers. Some, you know, the 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 well known ones out there, you know, like Luther and Calvin and and and, and Zwingli and and. And others, but also you know lesser known ones, which quite a, there's quite a bit of uh, British Reformation, English Reformation uh, figures in in our volume, probably due because of uh, of Jason's work there, um, and uh, and just seeing what again the the attention to the text that they have that maybe sometimes we don't think of that we, because we'll still lump Reformation as a pre modern era. You know, uh, so they're kind of maybe we just we treat it as fanciful, maybe, you know, that they, they just kind of jump around a text and do what they want. But I mean, they're 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 dealing with the biblical languages. They're 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 trying to understand the nature of genre. And uh, and so I guess, you know, a couple of things I would point out about our RCS volume is, you know, anybody that picks it up should read the prolegomena section at the start, um, we have a section of prefaces and uh, which are called from others prefaces at the time when they were writing on Matthew. And, uh, you know, there's, we have some from Bullinger there. We have Erasmus's Periclesis uh, that he wrote uh, as a preface to the gospels. And what you'll see in, in the, is a sensitivity to the fact that Matthew is an author and we have to listen to him. We have to do justice to what he's doing with his gospel. Uh, but then also um, that to understand 
Matthew and his intent is to also end up with a theological portrait. Um, it's not just a kind of a, a historical biography here. You know, there's a, it is historical, but it, it is meant to present to us something in particular theological, which is that Jesus is the, the Christ. He's the son of God, the son of man. And, and, uh, and so they're just, uh, it's really neat to watch them do that, uh, ha- have kind of wearing both hats there. They, they won't, they won't just ascribe to one of those tasks. They're, those are one and the same tasks, you know, um, and that is meant to call disciples to faith, uh, to follow Christ wherever he leads. So, uh, which is the other neat component, you know, is that uh, those are always reading the text and doing good interpretation was a, a, a practice of discipleship. Like it, it produces disciples and it's a practice of discipleship. Um, and uh, uh, in Erasmus's Periclesis, I've just, I remember the first time I read this and I, it's always, it's just left an indelible mark in my, my, my mind and heart uh, where he says, you know, when you read the gospels, a portrait of, of Jesus, the presentation of Christ, you know, some of us go, to the ends of the earth to go see a relic, to see a little splinter from the, from the, maybe from the cross. He's like, but when you read him here, when you read him here though, um, in his, his living, his, his suffering, uh, his healing, his teaching, his dying, his resurrecting. When you read him here, you actually see him more clearly than you would if he actually appeared before you. Uh, and it's such a, a high view of what faithful reading of the scriptures and their own self-presentation of Christ would do. That I, I would actually see him more clearly and truly through a right reading of these gospels in their own or on their own terms hmm. than if Jesus just happened to like show up one day. And I, and I get a vision of him, you know, and that's just a high view of, of what time, well, time well spent with the text is for the Christian. Mm-hmm. And knowing that in that periclesis, you know, Erasmus is arguing that everybody should have the opportunity to be able to do that, including the, the plowboy, you know, so. Um, Very reformational in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing about our RCS volume is uh, – the overwhelming amount of sermons that are in there. Mm. Uh, there's a heavy emphasis on, on sermons in, in our, our volume and uh, partly due to the preaching calendar, right. Um, within the history of the church too. I mean, Matthew's just being preached on. Um, but I think that's, I think as you're looking at a volume like that, you know, how, how can it, yes, how can it help you read the text and, Oh, let me go get the reformation commentary uh, so I can get a, 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 an older commentary on reading these verses or this chapter. But thinking about the genre of the excerpts himself tells us something about the fact that engaging the text in a particular way isn't just for, um, you know, a genre we, we might think about as a, as a really technical academic exercise, but a large a large amount of what's featured in our volume is actually from sermons. It's pre it's the preaching of the word. Um, and uh, sometimes, right. Uh, it's hard to tell the difference, you know, between a lecture and a sermon for some of those guys too. Uh, and uh, you could fly parachute down into Luther's lectures on, um, on something and it sounds like a sermon you could parachute down into a sermon you might think you're in a lecture you know there, there's a, a um, hortatory element that just goes into the nature of unpacking the scriptures for people that shouldn't be sectioned off to a classroom versus a, a lectern you know or a pulpit and uh, and I think that's a really fascinating element I, I think I'm growing in my own personal fascination with the sermon as a theological genre what what is a sermon if it's not simply a public speaking moment? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, so reading reading them there on Matthew and the gospel as a gospel is uh, 
a place to be a student and, and let somebody teach you how to handle the text, do theology, and address your hearers in a way that summons them to faith, hope, and love in Christ, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to, uh, the final question I was going to ask you is, uh, how is Lutheran Reformation relevant today, important today? What can we learn from it? <laughs> and you're about halfway there, too, talking about that. <laughs> that's right. The important three sermons. Yeah, but, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, aside, aside, from, right. aside from, you know, hating Catholics, uh, what other things can <laughs> we, what other things can we, uh, learn and appreciate from Luther and the Reformation? What would you encourage maybe pastors, scholars, whoever, just to, to be able to pick up from Luther, from the Reformers, and apply to their ministry now? Well, I didn't say hating Catholics. You did, you know, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people, people call me a Catholic on Twitter all the time, so I got to make up for it. You know? Okay, okay. All right. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, I do think I— I think contemporary preachers, teachers of the word would do well to live with reformation teaching and preaching. So I think there's a lot of contemporary value there. I think a few other things and here I'll, I'll borrow, I'll borrow from a few others have commented on this that I would echo. You, you have uh, Truman, Carl Truman wrote, one of the volume on Luther for the Christian life or Luther on the Christian life in crossway series, um, theologians for the Christian life. Um, and at the, at the end, he, he gives some just really great takeaways, you know, for why, sh- why should we read Luther today? Cause he can both inspire us and also infuriate us, you know, at the same time. So why, 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 why read him? And one of his, I think his first point was, that from Luther, and I think you would get this too from others like Calvin and Zwingli, um, at least the magisterial re- re- reformers, and but is a, a an priority. I think Truman says a priority and an objectivity of the nature of the gospel, uh, the 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 revelation of God. And I think in a culture where we are prone to individualism subjectivism in the way that we approach the Christian life, getting a good dose of the objectivity of Christ, the offer of the gospel, the nature of salvation, the scriptures, um, the promise of salvation, would just be such a, a corrective in a lot of ways. Um, I think it would do exactly what Luther wanted him, what he wanted to do for others. He, he, when he writes his 1535 lectures on Galatians, you know, he, he has a great introductory section. He says, I, what I want to do here is just honestly minister to, to souls that need to hear the, about the objectivity of the, the, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, we live in an age of people just, I think, uncertain, not, not just generally about things, but uncertainty about God, who is God to them, who, you know, who is God for them. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think about the way we, we uh, tr- treat the Christian life as, you know, every, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You know, there's an, the objectivity of the gospel promise that you get from spending time with the reformers is just such a gift um, for that. Mm-hmm. Um and um, yeah, other other things that I'm I'm really hopeful that will get attention over the next you know so many years, and things that I I personally hope to draw attention to myself and my own work in in in, in these ways is just the value of a high view of the church's practices for the Christian. Um, I would I would love to hear people talk about how much the church's practices of preaching, baptism, and Lord's Supper have affected their Christian life as much as they would say youth group, small group ministry mm. did. Mm. Um, the 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 Christian life for the Reformation. Um, was was still very corporate and communal, but it wasn't just in some friendly sense of uh, community. You know, it was 
a re a renewed understanding of the evangelical nature of baptism of Lord's Supper. Um, and this isn't about whether they are sacraments or not. We're just talking about what is a right understanding of their place within the church and that they are the, the rhythms of church life at its most central core. Um, and, and I think if you go back and you spend time with the reformers in those areas, and I don't just mean baptism, Lord's Supper, I mean preaching too. Um, liturgy, we could add, um, catechism, um, you know, which is not just about making, let's say your, your children, great systematic theologians. It's, you know, so that you could brag among your, your uh, other, you know, when your families get together, you know, or something, it's, it's about, what are those practices of the local body that actually constitute it as the, the, the visible gathering of the saints and, and structure its life? Um, that, that should be uh, the place when we say don't forsake the assembling of believers in Hebrews 10, 25. Um, uh, it's because not just because we all have to be in the same room together. It's, it's what we do when we come together, you know? Uh, and so I, I think the reformation, um, still has a lot to offer us because what we're seeing happen in the 16th century, especially as you get into the 1530s and, and moving forward, is that they realize <laughs> Jesus is probably not coming back like we <laughs> thought he was about to. And so what's the long game now? Like, what's the long game? Um, So long as he tarries and it's, the church, you know, it's the church. It's uh, it's it's what we do. It's what what we preach, what we teach. It's it's how we train pastors. It's what are they saying? How are we, I mean, you, you basically you have Luther preaching at the city church in Wittenberg f- for multiple years while Bugenhagen goes out and basically is an evangelical church planner f- mm-hmm. for like three years. You know, I mean. They're they're out there trying to pass on this evangelical understanding of the Christian life and the gospel and everything, and 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 you're getting to watch worship change, hymn writing change. You know how do we do all of those things well? That I just don't know that at large we go back to very much uh, resourcing to get a sense of what it means to be gospel people. Like if you want to be a gospel people in gospel church my goodness the the reformation era is just a um an oasis of, of thinking through what that might look like in form uh, mm-hmm. content practice not so much about whether you want to choose sides oh, i want to be a lutheran i want to be a presbyterian i want to be a baptist there's something more general there going on that we can still pay attention to across the board that uh, i would love to see get more attention yeah, it does seem like the, you know, just the spurring on of the Reformation uh, opened the doors for all this sort of creativity and rethinking about what the church is and supposed to be and why it matters. Uh, so we're kind of looking at people in real ecclesial crisis in some ways, trying to figure out how does the church live. And uh, yeah. it, seems to me we can, it seems to me we can get kind of comfortable now because we're so far away from that. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I mean, you're, you're kind of watching them scramble a little bit. Yeah, You know, they're... They're kind of figuring out on the fly a little bit what to do. So what are their impulses? What are their kind of theological instincts? You know, I mean, you know, they're just, I think, I think if we're afraid at times that pragmatism or, or secularism has infiltrated the church or, or, you know, things like that, I mean, one of the best ways to still kind of get back to what, would be your Protestant evangelical heritage would be to kind of look at people who were in similar crises, maybe trying to figure out how do we do this right. Um, And uh, I just find it always refreshing. It's just refreshing. I, I I mean, I was uh, one of the more recent volumes uh, that came out in the, uh, the, they've extended the American edition of the critical edition of Luther's works. 
Um, and so one of the recent volumes that came out the last couple of years, you know, has just a, a whole section of, of uh, writings on like ordination and, and, and kind of a, uh, how do we now understand what, you know, how to ordain somebody and, and what should qualify them for ordination. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, just thinking, and I know other traditions do these well, but especially for me in a free church, um, low church tradition often, you know, those, a lot of those things are kind of up for grabs all the time or always having to have the wheel reinvented, you know. Um, and so that's one reason I personally, as a, as a Baptist, you know, I, I, I want to go back and still understand how can I continue the enduring legacy there of that Protestant Reformation for the sake of, of being not just Baptist, but a, but a, an evangelical in the gospel sense of it uh, with, mm-hmm. with everything I do as a church churchman, as a Christian and so on. Yeah. All right, Billy. Well, after three years, you finally have come on church grammar <laughs> to finally have you on. It wasn't as bad as you thought, was it? It may not have been, but it probably would be my last, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. You know, it. no, Hey man, I'm so grateful for your friendship. your good brother. I'm blessed to be colleague with you. I'm, I'm thankful the Lord's brought you to work with us at Cedarville. And I'm, I'm glad for your own heart for similar things within ministry and research and life. And, and so grateful for you, great for your ministry here on the podcast too. So. Yeah. Well, same to you, man. That's why, that's why I dragged you on. Cause I like you so much. <laughs> well, that's so. the same reason I agreed. <laughs> there we go. I like you. And I was just saying, I just like myself that much, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Fair, yeah. fair, fair. You want to, you want to go back and listen to yourself. That's the whole thing. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Grateful for you, Billy. Hey, thanks, man. thanks so much, Brandon. Blessings, brother. Yeah.